If you'll remain standing and open your copy of God's word to Isaiah 3, verses, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 6. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful musician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Judah has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides misleads you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to condemn. He, he stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garnets, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flame of fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. 
There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Morning again. I had the privilege of having lunch with Dr. Sweeting here from CCU this week, and uh, he asked me a question during that lunch. What do you, what do you enjoy about your church? Or, um, yeah, I said many things uh, to answer that question. One of the things was, um, by the time I get to preach uh, on the Lord's Day, my heart is so full because the liturgy is so rich, the songs are so rich, they're so meaningful, and that's true again uh, today. So thank you, Robert, and all of the congregation. Let's pray to God. Our God, uh, we are so very thankful for Christ and for what he is for us in the gospel. We thank you for the terror of the law and how we still need it. Our pride and our arrogance, it abounds. Our self-interest and self-importance, it uh, soars, Lord. And so we need the law to come after us, to chase us down. And to submit us, Lord. And then we need the gospel to come in and free us and We're so thankful that the gospel is our only hope in life and in death. This very morning, that's what we pray for. We pray that the gospel might terrorize us. It might convict us and challenge us. And we also pray, God, as we always do, that Christ would be our all in all. That he would come in and take us into his arms and clean us up, and save us, and continually save us daily. That our lives might reflect you, and you might live with us, and be with us, because you are for us always and forever. So come, we pray. Would you magnify the triune God? Through this precious word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, I want to speak to you today about loss for the sake of gain. Not just loss and then period, but loss for the sake of gain. That's the main theme. C.S. Lewis once wrote, quote, Imagine yourself living in a house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But now he starts knocking the house about in such a way that hurts and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing there, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought, Lewis writes, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. 
He intends to come and live in it himself. End quote. There are times, beloved, when God seems severe, when he seems harsh with you and your life. In Lewis' words, there are times when he knocks the house about and you're left wondering what on earth is he up to. There are times when God seems severe, but it's only because he settles for nothing less than your complete redemption. Loss is always, always for the sake of gain. Well, let's remind ourselves where we've been in the book of Isaiah. The whole section of Isaiah 2, 1, that is verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 6, has two bookends. All right, so that's one big section. Isaiah 2, 1 to Isaiah 4 to 6. And there are two bookends. The first bookend is chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, what Robert preached on a couple of weeks ago. And what we saw there was the nations are attracted to God and his people. It's an amazing picture. The nations are actually attracted to God and his people. That's the first bookend. The second bookend is chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. We'll get there this morning. In that section, God visits his people in grace. And in between those two bookends, God speaks bluntly and sometimes harshly about the mess we have created. His confrontation is real. It's at times terrifying. He's knocking the house about. It's solemn and it's sobering at times. But what we need to understand is that this or that middle context there stands in the larger context of grace. God is going to save his people, and God is saving his people. So, with a little bit of background there, let's remind us where we're going to go today. There are two headings for this morning's sermon. I actually have an outline finally today. The first heading is... The Sovereign Lord Takes Away. The Sovereign Lord is going to bring about loss. Okay? The Sovereign Lord Takes Away. Secondly, the branch of the Lord creates gain. The branch of the Lord creates gain. He's going to bring about grace and goodness for you and your life in Christ. It's always in Christ. None of his gifts are outside of Christ. You need to be in Christ if you want to experience gain in this life. That is eternal gain. So the sovereign Lord takes away, and the branch of the Lord creates gain. Let's begin in chapter, where are we? There we go, chapter 3, verse 1. It's a big book, so I'm getting a little lost. Chapter 3, verse 1. The sovereign Lord takes away. The first section 
is 1 to verse 15, but um, we'll, get, we'll just walk through this verse by verse. Um, Behold, he says, the Lord of hosts, or Lord God of hosts, is taking away, there's our key word, from Jerusalem and from Judah, support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. Verse 15, skip there. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So this first section, verses 1 to 15, is bracketed by that term, the Lord God of hosts, and it means the sovereign God. And what is the sovereign God doing? Well, verse 1, he's taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. So the sovereign God is stripping his people of everything that stabilizes their life, in other words. That's your God. And that's the God of Israel. He's taking support of bread, and he's taking support of water. So the scene is going to be dreadful. The scene is going to be awful and miserable and terrifying. And the event Isaiah is referring to here is the Assyrian invasion. In 722, the Assyrians will come and decimate Israel. And yet, did you notice, as Joel read, it's not Assyria who Isaiah targets as the cause of this loss. Isaiah targets the Lord God of hosts. He's the one taking away support and supply. Yes, Assyria will be his secondary cause or his instrument, but you need to understand Calvary redeeming grace that Isaiah sees the Lord God of hosts, your sovereign God of taking away and of creating loss. To borrow the words from Lewis, God is the one knocking the house about. And we've all been there. Maybe you're there today. And God's hand upon you seems heavy. He seems harsh. He seems severe. And you're wondering what he's doing, as Lewis would say. Where his providence seems to cross, in Thomas Brooks' words, his promises. So Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's a promise, and you're thinking, great, I like that promise. But in your life, you don't have it. And so his providence seems to cross that promise. It doesn't line up. Some of you are there today, or will be, or have been. The sovereign Lord is taking away. He's creating loss. What loss looks like in Isaiah's day, we continue in our, in our section, verse 2. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder. So God takes away leaders. This is what he does to create loss. He takes away leaders. In verse 4, he replaces these leaders with boys. 
I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. He's giving his people immature, ungodly leaders inadequate to rule his people because they don't want him anymore. So I'll give you the leaders you want, just boys. Verse 5, this leads to social chaos. Look at it. With inadequate leaders, the people will oppress one another. There's anarchy. Everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. The gray-haired are supposed to receive honor, to be respected and cherished, to be adored, but not in this society, not in this church, not in Isaiah's day. God is stripping away good leaders from them. So that creates a vacuum of power, verses 6 and 7. For man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You be our leader. In this heap of ruins, this city, this church, well, it's going to be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I'm not going to be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make leader of the people. So there's a vacuum of power. And everyone is looking around for someone, anyone, to be their leader. But no one wants to. One of the things we learn, by the way, beloved, in this text so far is that one of the ways God disciplines his people is by taking away godly leaders. I spoke last week about how I see a loss, or what I see to be a loss, among the dignity of ministers of the gospel today. And Isaiah says, that's true, but um, don't think for a moment, Calvary Redeeming Grace, that you're immune to it. We must press in on Christ, and that's how we have qualifications. That's why we have these qualifications with us in Scripture. These are the type of people, these are the type of men that are to rule and to lead, to guide, to shepherd. Why the loss comes, he says. That's what the loss looks like, but why does it come? He says in verses 8, they defy God's presence. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Literally, it says, the eyes of his glory. So, no doubt that God's people want forgiveness. I don't doubt that. And no doubt do they want protection from enemies. I doubt that too. But what they don't want is God's glorious presence. That is, they don't want God to be too real. Does that make sense? Yes, give me grace and forgiveness and mercy, protection from sure, for sure from our enemies, but just don't be too real for us. The eyes of his glory is an idiom of, of closeness, of intimacy, of communion with his people. And Isaiah says, the church in that day didn't want that. Don't get too close to us. They also flaunt their sin, verse 9. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. 
They don't hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. So Isaiah says, you have no one to blame but yourself. You don't need the world. You don't need the temptation of the world and the nations to bring you down, to corrupt you. The problem lies within. It's within. And then there's this comment in verses 10 and 11. It comes out of nowhere. What do we do in this, in this state when the church is like this? Well, Isaiah says, keep preaching. Verses 10 and 11. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Isaiah says both the wicked and the, and the righteous are going to die in this life. But even Old Testament faith looked beyond the grave. So Isaiah says, keep preaching. Keep ministering the word. Tell, tell the righteous that it's, it's worth it. Tell the righteous that his hands are, excuse me, they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. And tell the wicked his hands shall, shall come about. Judgment will come. Even as things look so upside down and backwards, Isaiah says, keep ministering the word. Sound familiar? In our day, we live in a world where it looks like it's upside down and backwards. We have a church culture at times that looks upside down and backwards. What do we do? Do we, do we storm the gates? Do we transform society? Isaiah says, no, you, you keep ministering the gospel. You keep preaching. Just as an aside, I get questions all the time about, the, about what the church should be doing today in a culture like ours. And my answer is always the same. What we've always done What we've always done. We minister the word. We minister the word and sacrament. Was the world worse in the first century? Better? What did the church do? They didn't transform society. What they did, beloved was minister the word and sacrament. You know why? Do you know why that, that simple means of grace is so powerful? For two reasons, at least. It is through word and sacrament that God extends his kingdom around the world as Christ is exalted, as preaching, as Richard Sibb says, carries Christ around the world. It's, it's word and sacrament that extends the kingdom. And secondly, it's word and sacrament that purifies the church. So what do we do in our day? We minister the word and sacrament. That's what we do. So, verse 12. The Lord again exposes the leaders. My people, infants are their oppressors, 
and women rule over them. O my people, he says, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. So the divine ideal of kingship is corrupted. The holder of the office is inadequate. Uh, Women. Women here possibly refers to the royal harem. So in our language, uh, the entourage. Is that, can we just leave it there? It's the entourage. So if the king was incompetent, or at times, as you read your Bibles, a spoiled brat, it's likely his wives, think of Jezebel, manipulative and demanding they were, were the real power behind the throne. Verses 13 and 14 continue. The Lord has taken his place to to, to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. The elders and the princes whom the Lord judges. Again, he's talking about the, the leaders here. Ray Ortland says, quote, instead of living to enrich others, false leaders ride on the backs of others. So you have the right people in place, but they're doing the wrong things. And Isaiah says, this is why God is taking everything away. This is it. Because as Lewis said, pain, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Or in our case, a deaf church. So he takes it away. He continues. Verse 16. Verses 16 to 4 1 is another block here under our first heading. The sovereign Lord takes away. And in this section, the church is described as haughty. Look at it, verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they're arrogant. This is what the church is. They're prideful. The church walks, Isaiah says, with an outstretched neck. So she does everything to receive attention to herself, to attract attention. In verse 18, the Lord responds. Look at it. He takes away, again, he takes away what she loves. The finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves. Verse 24, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness and branding instead of beauty. In other words, God is doing for them what they will not do for themselves. He takes away whatever it is you love more than him. That's what he does. So the sovereign Lord takes away where this position of loss. In fact, chapter 4, verse 1 the women grab, seven women grab one man, and they say, hey, you can keep your credit card. I just need your name. We'll eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. You can keep your money. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. All they have is shame and disgrace. It's loss and loss and loss. And so Isaiah leaves you, is, is this our God? Is this what God is up to? Is this his purpose in loss? And Isaiah says, no. 
Not ultimately. Which brings us to our second heading of the branch of the Lord will create. The branch of the Lord creates gain in the place of loss. He says in verse 2, look at this. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. It, it turns on a dime. The branch of the Lord, that's the Messiah. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33. That's the Messiah, that's the coming king. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah describes him as, he says he's going to be beautiful and glorious. Isn't that so true, beloved? Isn't Jesus Christ the most exquisite, most majestic person you've ever seen, you've ever met? Just think one moment about his invitations. Aren't they so free? They're so free. In Isaiah 55, we quote it often here. He says, um, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do you buy without money? But that's the invitation of Christ. His invitations are so sweet. They're so, in the words of Isaiah, so beautiful and so glorious. Come, he says. They're so absolutely free. And we think to ourselves, do we not? Oh, we got to clean up our act before we come. And he says, no, you come filthy or you don't come at all. That's how you ought to come. His promises are they not so sure and so full and so rich? We read of saints of old dying, and what are they quoting but the promises of Scripture? In their affliction and pain, his promises are so sure and full. His work, think about the glorious and perfect work and beautiful work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any loss in his cross? Any blemish to that Lord Jesus Christ as he's dying and bleeding for sinners? No. The branch of the Lord is certainly beautiful and glorious in his word. His word is so life-giving. Haven't you ever been at rock bottom? Perhaps you're there today, and his word comes in, and it's so full of life, so full of peace, so full of joy. Isaiah says, this is the beautiful and glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and he's coming to replace loss with gain. He says in verses 3 and 4 that he who was left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem 
when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. If, if the Lord Jesus Christ was in focus in verse 2, it's the church in focus in verses 3 and 4, the daughters of Zion, the people of God. In chapter 3, verse 16, beloved, we, the daughters of Zion, were described as haughty and prideful and arrogant. We had garments of sackcloth and stained with sin. But here, all because of the branch of the Lord, all because of the beautiful Lord Jesus Christ, here we're described as holy. Loss has turned to gain. He's by justice, he's taking away the filth, he says, and he's cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. That's what he's done for you. He's extracted the sin from your life and forgiven every sin, past, present, and future. This was his whole point in creating loss. Don't you see it now? This was his whole point of stripping every idol away from your hands. So that you cling to him, you cling to the branch. You can't cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. You thought you were being made into a beautiful cottage, Lewis says. But in actuality, you're being made into a palace. In verses 5 and 6, And the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and smoke, and the shining of a flame of fire by night, and for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Again, this is what God was doing all along in your life as he was taking everything away. It's to give you gain. It's to create something new. Can you believe that? Do you believe that? Because the battle, beloved, for the Christian in the Christian life is the battle of faith. Do you believe that truth that he creates loss in your life for the sake of gain? If you can believe that, you can handle the Christian life. Somewhat. That is what Isaiah is after. This imagery of smoke and a flaming fire. Where's that from? The Exodus. Right? When the Lord garrisoned his people with his presence. That pillar right of smoke and the and the fire by night that led his people through the wilderness. Isn't it beautiful what Isaiah does? The same, the same presence that we denied in chapter 3, verse 8, 
his glorious presence, now here in 4, 5, and 6, garrisons us. The very presence we deny, God now gives. Isn't that just like God? Isn't that just like our God? He doesn't respond to sinners with tit for tat. Do you understand that? I see one head. Do you understand that? We are a bunch of legalists. He does not respond to sinners with tit for tat. Exactly. The very presence you don't want, that you need, he gives. Brothers and sisters, what great gospel truth this is. A canopy, it's a marriage chamber, a hoopah. It's a marriage chamber, a booth, a shelter, he says. It's almost as Isaiah, as he closes this chapter, says, what do you need, dear Christian? What is it that you need? Do you need his love spread afresh in your soul? Well, here's a hoopah. Here's a marriage chamber for you and Christ. Do you need a shelter? Are you, are you weary from life? From the rain and the storm, Isaiah says. Well, here's a booth. Here's a shelter to lay down and seek refuge in. So what is it that you need, dear Christian? Because Christ is furnished with everything you need. So perhaps loss is worth it. Perhaps suffering is worth it. In Lewis's words, maybe God is creating a palace for you and him to live in, now and forever. Let's pray. Our great God, we have seen Christ again and again and again in this wonderful book we call Isaiah. And we pray that you would continually show larger and clearer and fuller views of him. Give us a sense of our smallness. Give us a sense of our sinfulness. But oh, make Christ our all in all. And we'll lie down with him in love and we'll lie down with him in a refuge until you call us home. Amen.